Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on cyber.it using the discount code podcast. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyber. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Um, it also gets me into my next topic which is a bit of the controversial one, and everyone's always talking about it, is the, the use of zero days in cyber weapons and cyber attacks. And for me, you know, I was in the past, uh, I spent 11 years at Symantec working in patch management and, and doing, uh, basically helping patching, you know, the zero days once you got some type of configuration or hardening and so forth. And it also kind of got me in thinking as well as that, when you're using a zero day, you mentioned you know, burning, burning, you know, if you want to be noisy and you have to do it fast, sometimes you have to burn something quickly. And it gets into is really what, what's the risks of zero days? Because zero days, when we look at them, is that you could be, let's say, what was a, a Windows vulnerability. Into if you look at the mass, how many people in the world are using Windows? And where's the mass population? Um, and, you know, is your target mostly using those operating systems or is it just that? minute kind of, let's say, uh, campaign target. And it gets into really kind of where do we sit where, when is it okay to use zero days and when is it should be responsible disclosure? And when do we have to look at, you know, when's the risk too high? You know, when most of your citizens, you know, let's say, for example, it was Facebook. Most of the citizens are, you know, population using Facebook are, you know, Western countries. And if it was a zero day or some type of impact to use it against the target, at the same time, once that zero day is burned, it gives the the the, the other the the target the ability to turn that around, weaponize it, and shoot it back again. It was unlike conventional kinetic weapons. Um, it, it's like ping pong. Is when you hit the the ball over to one side of the the the, the net, um, that ball can be turned around and hit right back at you. Um, so, what's your what's your thoughts on the runs of you know zero days yeah. and when it gets into the Responsible disclosure, the impact and risk assessments of when it's okay to use them. Yeah, it's re- another really complicated topic. Um, I mean, I think first off, you know, if you are a legitimate offensive cyber actor, mm-hmm. you should try as hard as possible not to have to use exploits. Um, mm-hmm. So you should lean on your unfair advantages as like a government agency to find other ways in. Um, yep. You know what I mean? And and so maybe that's. I mean. The, the big one is credential stealing, right? So if you can just yeah. steal credentials and masquerade, like do that, right? That's way, way less noisy. Um, you, 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 you aren't like compromising any kind of uh, system at a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, you know, use the, the principle of like least, um, uh, you know, the, the, the least invasive technique you can to achieve your objectives, right? It's also avoiding um, the, the ethical, moral issues around disclosing that to the exactly exactly right and so so i think generally speaking that's just that's the 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 way to go and i don't think that's controversial i think that that definitely is how how things go Mm -hmm. um the where you get into really sticky territory is like okay well should we um 
keep like a, a, a treasure chest of really critical vulnerabilities for like, if you're up against, you know, an adversary who's got their shit together and like you, mm-hmm. you, you, you can't masquerade or they've got really stringent like controls around the things that you need to get into. Do you keep a sledgehammer around so that like, if you've got to break into something, you do the risk reward calculus and you're like, yeah, it's that important. Like let's, let's, let's use this mm-hmm. O'Day. Right. Um, that's where we get into territory where not everyone's going to agree, right? And so, um, my where where my feelings are is that I I feel I I I love the way that the security community keeps us safe, right? And I love that we have responsible disclosure and we've changed the mentality so that you know manufacturers and 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 uh, you know people that publish uh, software no longer have a litigious response to you like disclosing something. It's like, oh, thank you for doing that. Here's some money. I mean, I think we've we've gotten. We've, we've, we've come a really long way. Um, and you know, my, my default position is like disclose the vulnerability, keep us safe. Right. Because, you know, if you talk to a government, you know, someone who's lived in the government their whole life and and all they know is cyber operations, they're going to be focused on their little, you know, view of the world. And they're going to say, no, like, you know, that, that, uh, RC against, um, you know, windows remote desktop is like super juicy. Like we need that. We'll pay for that and like, Mm -hmm. keep it on the side. Please don't disclose that because that means a lot to them in their operations. But you think about the, the millions of people that are now all of a sudden um, at risk, right? Because, um, you know, maybe they live under, a, a, you know, a dictatorship or there's, you know, they're a journalist and they're getting suppressed, mm-hmm. right? Like, is it is the juice, juice worth the squeeze there? Like, I, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on it because I've seen both sides. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have any Wait, good answers. What answer you're saying that. is, the same people who have no problem keeping a nuclear arsenal around also fall. I mean, it's the same sort of thing of we have this like deterrent sledgehammer yeah. thing that we all know is completely, we should never use, but yet right. we don't want to get rid of it. Right. And I imagine, and so it puts, I'm, right. I'm sure if it was up to civilians, 100% up to civilians, we'd probably be doing something different than what we do. Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the additional, yeah. So I was just going to say the additional complexity there is that I think making a nuclear weapon that you can put on an ICBM is orders of magnitude harder than finding some of these oh, yeah. vulnerabilities. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, I think it's, it's important. It's, it's the capability. It's, I, I think you don't need to store thousands of these things around. It's the capability. Knowing that you have the capability of doing it is sometimes enough of a deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, knowing that you have, you know, the capability, if you needed to, you could have, you know, hundreds of them in a short amount of time. I think that's, it's more of the capability versus, you know, having it um, sitting around because having it sitting around just means that you have to maintain aging, you know, let's say very instable, very, you know, rusting, um, maintaining a very costly infrastructure to do so. I think it's more as, as knowing that you have the ability to, to produce something quickly is is enough of a deterrent and those when you get into really big kinetic uh, impact side of things i think that um, also goes with what josh was saying earlier about like use your unfair advantage right as a as a nation state i imagine if we really needed to find a zero day quickly mm-hmm. there's no reason to stockpile them we probably right. could find it pretty quick or or find another way in you know use right. human enabled operations right like we're a government we can pay people off to do stuff you know what i mean like there are other ways around it you know and I, and i just go back to i mean we've seen a couple of really devastating worms you know in the past couple of years that you know 
ostensibly came from a compromised like nation state actor. You know, you think about um, Eternal Blue, um, you know, that yep. that remote code execution vulnerability. Um, like having that on the shelf would be really, I, I imagine for whoever the, you know, the, the, the um, agent was that, that got compromised from it, having that on the shelf is incredibly valuable. Like if you've got to crack into a hard target and you just, there's no other way you've got to get into that domain controller or you've got to get into like the, the IT administrators, like workstation or whatever. And you've been sitting there for three months and there's like some critical stuff going on. Like, yeah, bring out the hammer. Like we got to get in there. I can see how the temptation is, is there, but like, look at the damage, right? Was the juice yep. worth the squeeze on that? I don't, I mean, I don't know. That's not for me to say, but. Um, several, several trillion in companies value over a space of only a few months. Um, you know, I, I, this is where I look at is that at some point in time, you have to let go of things that are from the past. You have to keep moving forward. And those types of, you know, sitting on the shelf, there's, there's we should have a shelf life for them. It should also be based on a risk assessment approach, saying that, you know, um, this particular exploit or at a zero day, that it can, you know, there's an 80-20 rule that, it, you know, this 80-20 of my own was the people that I'm protecting are exposed to this and only 20% to my target. When do you have that decision of, okay, right. there's a shelf life of this. Um, I prefer not to, you know, to nobody but us. How do you know that no one else has it until it's been used? Which is right. the well, the longer it sits around, the more likely it is that somebody else has discovered it anyway. Exactly. So it's probably better to correct. So there should be an expiration or shelf life of those, and you should always be looking for the next one, the one that you find next, and keep moving forward, especially in later versions and, and, and updated. And this even gets me into one. I remember there was a situation a few years ago. Uh, it was in DC, and it was all about private companies doing this for a business and selling it to governments. And this is where I'm a, this is where even where, you know, my ethical moral compass gets, you know, I, I hate, I hate that ability where a private company, their business model is for finding zero days and selling them to governments. Cause they're not going to sell to one government. They're going to sell to many. And overnight, what some of those, you know, governments that they sell it to could turn to be a foe. So where is it okay for private companies to be in, in, in kind of involved in this type of activity? We should yeah. be classified as export, <laughs> export, export compliance because there's a lot of companies we have, and there is no export compliance for these types of uh, activities. For a zero day, there is no export compliance. It's complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look, private companies are are motivated by profit, right? Um, and that's neither good nor bad. It really depends on what the the, the companies you know, doing. And I mean, I think we're seeing things like, you know, zero day initiative and bug bounties mm -hmm. are, are starting to get us towards a place where people who do this kind of work of reverse engineering and vulnerability research can make a really good living, like exposing vulnerabilities mm -hmm. and, and, and getting them patched. It doesn't, it pales in comparison to yeah. certain kinds of, you know, like, if you if you have a full blown jailbreak for an iPhone from Safari mobile browser all the way through to the kernel, like it's like you know over a million dollars, right? Uh, is is probably what yeah. what a government would be willing to pay for that. I I am unaware of any private uh, company. I don't know that I don't know what Apple would pay you for that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's not over a million. Less, less than hundred. I think their maximum has been ten, twenty five, or even fifty k. You know, so, you know, it really so, becomes, that's yeah. where it comes a private government, uh, you know, kind of type of uh, customer, you know, and, and it's, 
And the, the thing is, is that those companies, they want to sell to, to, they don't just want one customer. They want to have multiple. So that's where you get into right. the, 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 the challenge. Right. Why like sell it to Apple and three government agencies, you know, three other governments? Well, well, for me, that's actually perfectly fine because it gives you equal race. It's, it's an equal playing field that everyone has the, the same uh, starting point. If they sold it at the same time, that is. Right. Um, it gives everyone an equal opportunity. For me, I'm perfectly fine where that's a disclosure, meaning that, um, you know, we're racing, I'm racing to, to, to find a fix and to patch it, and others are racing to exploit it. So it gives an equal opportunity. And that's what responsible disclosure sometimes is about, is to give everyone the equal opportunity rather than having uh, attackers having knowledge and using it, abusing it before everyone can actually go to harden or to decide and do a risk approach. And but it gets yeah, into the responsible disclosure is yeah. making, you know, my opinion is that you're trying to give the defender a little bit of a leg up. You don't like release it all at the same time. You say, Hey, this is a thing I want you, you know, I wanted you to be aware of it. And if they don't take care of it within a reasonable period of time, then yeah, you, you know, that, that, you do to force the hand, but you know, you want to give them at least, you know, some period of time yeah. to address it. Absolutely. Now that's the 90 day rule where they really give, you know, the, right. notifying the vendor first um, and giving them the opportunity to fix it. Um, but at the same day, when it gets into you know, what we're talking about is selling it to governments I think it's 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 important to give everyone an equal playing field at that point. Right. And I guess I mean, should we end up getting into where should we have actually for security researchers should they get some type of protection like a whistleblower type protection for this as well? Because I remember uh, doing a panel a couple of years ago, and it was an interesting panel because we had uh, you know security researchers, pen testers on one side, we had law enforcement and another, and companies and another. And they, here was the, the outcome scenario was interesting because law enforcement said, um, if you basically, let's say, uh, find an exploit or find some type of vulnerability in those companies, uh, either infrastructure or tools or solution, whatever it may be, is that, and you do do it in a way that you might be exposing yourself to some legal issues, then the law enforcement says, disclose it anonymously. <laughs> and then the other side is, so you, you're hardworking, you never get recognized for um, and then the second part was, is that if those companies find out that you did find a vulnerability and, and, and that they're potentially putting many customers and companies and people and citizens at risk by actually not fixing it, that they will end up suing the security researchers for actually doing that activity. And it gets into, and there's a lot of cases right now, there's several companies that are actually suing security researchers and even journalists for, for reporting it, that you know, to really make it move forward to, to should there be some type of protection over those who are not doing it from a, from a criminal perspective, they're not profiting over it. And it's more about getting to that equal playing field where we all have the ability to, to know about it and decide ourselves to, to fix it. So Joshua, do you, do you have any, any thoughts on that and Mike as well? Yeah, definitely. So um, it's certainly like a scary thing, right? Um, I mean, I, so I, I worked a little bit with um, the EFF's um, Coders Rights Initiative. Um, I mean, these guys are are, are amazing. Um, you know, they give pro bono legal advice to people that like disclose vulnerabilities. So, um, you know, I've, I've worked with them a, a couple of times on some things. And, um, you know, that that's given me a lot of comfort that I was on like firm legal footing and like disclosing vulnerabilities, especially like one of them, I, uh, I found a vulnerability in the DNC's donor database. Um, mm -hmm. Like you could, you could dump their entire <laughs> donor list. You could like unsubscribe people. It was pretty horrible. It's like a URL enumeration thing. Um, and, you know, obviously given their history, um, I was like really concerned about like what's going to happen if I like disclose this thing. 
Um, so, so I think number one is just like having resources available for security researchers that are doing good work to make sure mm -hmm. that um, they feel like they're on firm legal footing when they go and approach people. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, you know those those uh, lawyers are giving legal advice about U.S. code, and so like we need to make sure that U.S. code is also um, you know unambiguously mm -hmm. and firmly like outlining what is and is not um, you know. Because another part of it is, especially when you're when you're dealing with, I mean, it's a, if you're dealing with, um, you know, a binary or some mm -hmm. some code that you have in like a mocked up environment, that's one thing. Oftentimes, when you're dealing with like SaaS vulnerabilities, yeah. you're dealing with a live server that's in production, and so like when you're in the process of discovering what's going on with that service, there's always in the back of your mind like, is where is the line? Like, where's the line here where like, um, I'm good and then, oh wow, okay, I found like, a, you know, a SQL injection and now I just dumped a bunch of customer data. Like, is this the line? Like, where's the line, you know? Um, <laughs> and so, so like, I think we just, we need to go uh, a longer way and like illuminating that for people. And the challenge is that it's really hard to explain this stuff to people that are experts in crafting code. So like, you know, I, I don't know what the way forward is there. Um, but yeah, Mike, I'd love to hear, you know, what your thoughts are. Um, yeah, no, I, it's just a tough issue. Right. And I mean, my thoughts are all over. Um, but yeah, I think about our own disclosure program that we've released and, you know, my thoughts on, yeah, I do want people to participate. I want to know those vulnerabilities. And to your point of like, well, what's too far. We were actually having this discussion the other day about like, well, so we have a platform, um, and people can launch, you know, virtual machines and do, you know, labs and all these things. Well, that actually runs up our bill. So at what point of doing vulnerable, like, I appreciate you letting me know, but I also don't want you to like cause our AWS bill or our vendor bill mm -hmm. to go and, you know, and put us out of business because you didn't realize the impact of this thing that you're doing to test. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, it's, yeah, it's a difficult, difficult area. Yeah. And, and if your, your point is that sometimes it only makes an incident when there's actually some type of financial impact as well, um, as well. So that when, when there is some financial you know, money and I go back to the cuckoo's egg, which I always love reading the book and there's, you know, I think it was a 73 or 77 cents, which actually became the criminal, the criminal activity. Right. Um, even though it was such a minute cost. Um, and it gets into, so Joshua, you were saying one of the things that I find, I remember doing, you know, a, a lot of penetration tests in the past where I could walk up to the door and the door's open, I could look through the door, I could stand there, I could watch people coming in the door. But the moment I put my foot inside the door, that's when that gray legal area became the challenge. And that's where you, you, you can sit and watch whatever data is going in and out. You could, you know, the door's lying right open and other, you know, let's say criminals could decide to go in through that same door. But when the point is, is that you do want to know, well, what's the risk of that, that door being opened? what's behind it and end up getting in, you'll start looking and now it's a, it's a, it's a data database. Right. And then you've got all the sensitive data. So now you know the risk, but at that, that point in time to identify the risk, you put your foot in the door and right. this is where it always gets in. And so yeah, the EFF, I think is, is definitely fantastic to have that, at least from a legal backing for a lot of security researchers. But I do think there needs to be some type of at least protection from a whistleblower type of scenario, security whistleblowing, uh, scenario protection uh, for the future to make sure that they're not exposed because, you know, a lot of these are individuals, you know, most, most hackers are good citizens looking to use their skill and help and right. sure um, they're not. Especially hiding. if they're telling you about it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if and, and even work with them to help fix it because sometimes they're the ones that knows how to right. close the door. 
So, right. and I think one of the other challenges is that the sort of international, right? So the mm -hmm. U.S. laws and if, what happens if the researchers in some other country or vice yep. versa were here. So I think there's, you know, there's probably got to be some sort of international framework. And, um, you know, earlier you were mentioning the whole, um, you know, sell it to nations and multiple nations. Like what ran through my head is like, do we need like a who of, you know, World Health Organization of cybersecurity where it's actually a UN run and like they'll give you $10 million. <laughs> they, they can put up more money than anyone else for that vulnerability and make sure that there is that even playing field. Right. Um, something yeah. along those lines. And this gets into what I mentioned earlier, but you know, things like the talent papers, which was one of those first steps, really looking at international cooperation and really kind of, you know, that definition into how we actually mitigate you know, these types of incidents in the, in the future. And then I, I really like when um, Brad Smith, um, Microsoft really kind of brought up the term. I was a bit against it at the beginning because I wasn't quite sure what his opinion, what, what the Geneva Convention style um, type of cyber cooperation, which is, is really kind of that WHO of the cyber realm right. about you know, how do you make sure that if somebody does decide to do a, you know, a cyber war for you know, attack, against the nation state um, to make sure that civilians are avoided. And it gets into the, the, the big gray areas, even in Ukraine, when you attack a power station, you take out electricity, um, was there human life losses? That, because, you know, I worked in ambulance services and hospitals in the past, and if I have no electricity, um, especially for, you know, in, in a December winter night, and when it's really cold, then you are at risk of, you know, people's lives being lost. So, you know, this gets into really where I think after those events and, and, and those areas that I do think there has to be some protection, but because, you know, sometimes even Josh, as you mentioned, is that what, you know, civilians working in aircraft carriers, civilians working in, uh, you know, war zones and military locations that, you know, to make sure that they're not at risk. Um, so we do need to have some, you know, especially things like Red Crosses out in a lot of these areas uh, for medical uh, scenarios, but we really do need to have some type of gene if it can mention to protect civilians from being secondary victims of, of accidental cyber attacks. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is totally not a plug for ship five, I promise. Um, but <laughs> I, you know, I think, um, you know, we're, we've seen a ton of security activity in the information technology space mm -hmm. over the past couple of decades, obviously. Um, We've seen a lot of really promising work in defending these systems to the point now where like you and I, you know, do banking transactions on the internet um, and we're, you know, more or less reasonably confident that it's, you know, it's secure against the casual attacker, at least. Um, that's, that's pretty incredible progress, right? But if you look at like operational technology, so things like, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, um, your car, I'm sure this isn't news to you guys, but like your car has dozens of computers in it, like microcontrollers that are running firmware communicating with each other. And like, and a lot of cars these days, when you move the steering wheel, it's not like directly driving the wheels. It's like fly by wire. Like there are computers in the middle of you and your wheels. So, so there's software that is conveying you on a highway, like at 75 miles an hour or whatever, right? Like that's kind of terrifying because I will tell you after looking at these systems, um, they are nowhere near the level of security that IT systems are. And that is terrifying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, like there's, there's not an OT system that, that I've seen or, or come across or been part of a team that's done penetration tests where we just haven't compromised it at the lowest level. Um, yeah. 
these things are designed with physical security in mind, and that's just completely not the case anymore. Either A, you can very readily gain physical access to these things, or the supply chain that 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 is mm-hmm. uh, that is um, putting these systems together. Or B, like very often there's telemetry systems nowadays on, in your car. You got your OnStar, and like you know, I think GM, for example, like not to call them out, but they have like every car as of 2017 and 2018 has like you have no option in the matter. Like it is going to phone home. Um, you know what I mean? And, and so like, I, I am, yeah, I, I think on the IT side, we've seen that control that, that information systems can cause loss of human life. Like there was a hospital, like, I can't recall where it was, but like, I think not Petya hit them and mm-hmm. like crypto lockered a bunch of, of systems and they couldn't like schedule surgeries. And like, there was like patient management issues that like undoubtedly cost loss of life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now imagine we do that to OT systems, which like the whole point of these systems is to manipulate the physical world. Like it's 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 too easy for us to like go to you know the DC metro and run a, a train into the blocks at eighty miles an hour, right? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, that's where I'm just like absolutely terrified is 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 that we haven't made progress on the OT side. I agree. I, I, that's probably one of the areas that keeps me up at night is is that that the the where it comes into where you know people's lives are at risk, and that was always to get into you know when I when I worked in ambulance service years ago, my systems I had an SLA of twenty three minutes, and if my systems weren't running for twenty three minutes, then I knew I was responsible for people's lives, and that's where kind of that's where your SLA, and that's where nearly you know, but from then till now, that's the only thing I remember in my my entire career that really give me a lot of pressure and actually kept me up at night where I you know, want to make sure that those systems were operating all the time, you know, and your point as well is that when you're buying equipment today, if you're buying a TV or a car or whatever, you know, um, but they call it IOT devices, but really it's just a computer that is dedicated yep. purpose, uh, pur- purpose kind of use functional that cannot be reprogrammed that much. It's dedicated uh, purpose. And when you buy them, you're, you're actually not buying the car. You're actually you're you're renting the service of the car, and it's the manufacturer vendor who's now owning the data. I remember even working. I did a, a project on autonomous shipping, and the engines that we were using for the autonomous ship that we didn't own. We 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 purchased the engines. We owned the hardware itself, but the manufacturer owned the data that those engines were actually creating. Mm. Um, so it gets into even the cars. You know, you get a Tesla. It's the manufacturer owns the data that those cars create. And then there's a lot of those difference in contracts that we have today, which even increases a lot of risks that, um, and it's ease of use, it's simplicity. You know, I, I remember somebody, one, one's like, you know, they had this uh, computer system and it was, a, <laughs> it was a funny scenario. It was the, the computer system, this is the most secure computer system ever. You know, everything, you can't access it. You know, it's very limited. And the person came up and turned around and, you know, one of the, the guys in the team said, oh, you know, so if I take the chassis off, the alarms and stuff will go off and, you know, I can't interfere with the, with the, the computer electric equipment. And they're like, absolutely. <laughs> and he took a drill and drilled a hole in the top of the computer, <laughs> took the top off, and of course not setting off any alarms and then had I direct access to electric equipment. So, you know, sometimes it gets into perception, you know, and, and we have to make sure that we, we are realistically, when we're looking at these from a security perspective, is doing a proper assessment and proper risk assessment. Um, and that should be part of, you know, security by design. And it will definitely help, you know, in the future become more resilient. And this ultimately, the more resilient you are, the more or less attractive you are to cyber attacks. And it goes back to, 
even Estonia, as I mentioned at the beginning, when Estonia decentralizes data, data uh, repositories across multiple countries, they became less attractive because in order to attack Estonia, you needed to attack five countries. And that becomes a less attractive. And for an attacker, you might be attacking your ally as a result of that because you might have good relations. And it also means that those small countries are almost acting like a bigger country because they're cooperating, collaborating, and relying on those other countries' infrastructures. So I think that really kind of gets into one of my next points and final points is the defensive side of things where civilians get involved. And I know the, the article that you wrote was actually heavily, you know, getting into this area where even Estonia, after the attack, it was the development of what's called as a cyber defense league. And this is, this is really what I like is where civilians get involved to defending the country and leaving the offensive capabilities to the government, you know, offensive uh, uh, operations. Um, so what do you think, especially in countries around the world and even in the U.S., the future of, of cyber defenses or, you know, a cyber core or whatever we call it, a reserve, cyber reserves or, you know, the guards. Uh, what do you think it is today and what do you think it needs to go in the future? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of really promising progress on this front. So, um, you know, there are a number of initiatives, at the National Security mm -hmm. Agency and at um, Cyber Commands to share, I mean, there are details to work out here, but information sharing between um, corporations and the U.S. government. Um, I think there's we're building some strong foundations there, and that is absolutely critical. Um, you know, I, I think corporations need to trust the government that, like, if we're tipping them off to something that we're seeing at at the at the government level using our unfair advantages, that they trust that information, right? Um, so, you know, that's going to be a long-term relationship building thing. There's a technology solution as well as a people solution that, that we need to, to build in there. So that I think is, is a really important foundation. I think we're seeing also promising progress on the civil military divide. Um, we need to go farther, but I think, um, uh, for example, national guards are standing up these, um, these cyber units that, um, can go and do incident responses um, you know, as appropriate. And, and these are people that, you know, their day job, they're a CISO at a, at a, um, at a company or they work in a sock or something like that. And then they can transition that experience directly into their military role and go do an instant response on a power plant or something like that. So mm -hmm. seeing a lot of really like promising progress there. Um, and then, you know, on the government side, um, you know, we're, we're, we're still having a hard time, you know, attracting, not even attracting, but but retaining um, really talented individuals and keeping them like kind of um, satiated with 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 a high stream of of, of quality work. Um, you know, they signed up to do a mission, and oftentimes they're not. Most of the time, they're not doing that mission. They're doing like kind of you know military ceremonial stuff rather than you know digging into <laughs> you know digging into an incident or something um, and giving them the tools. You know, I mean. I think it's a pretty hot sell to be able to say to someone, hey, like you're going to go do um, hunt missions on submarines that are deployed or like you're going to go out to, you know, uh, Afghanistan and you're going to do um, hunt missions on helicopters. You know what I mean? Like you're going to take when the helicopters come back. You're going to go and you're going to dissect all kinds of memory dumps and do hunting and surveillance and analysis. Like you could attack, you could attract some top talent to do that kind of mission, but we throw up a lot of barriers to getting them there. Um, I, I'm a lot more confident though on the defensive side because I think um, the 
people can do the defensive mission in their civilian capacities in a lot of ways, where on the offensive side, the closest an, uh, analog you have is, um, is pen testing or like threat emulation. Um, and guess where a lot of those threat emulators uh, come from? They were like my coworkers <laughs> until they got fed up with government service. And then they go and they write rootkits for, for whoever, right? Um, so yeah, kind of a scatter shot, but I'm, I'm, I'm relatively pretty, um, uh, uh, pretty bullish on, on where we're headed, especially on the defensive side. And I see, I see a lot of promising progress. And that's great to hear because I think over the years I've been seeing a lot of different, you know, discussions and points. And I think I've, I've, over the years I've been sharing what Estonia has been doing in those areas and hopefully that it's been replicated and, and those lessons learned, um, you know, what the, the cyber defense is. And then even here that we have the Lock Shields event every year, which does the, the more uh, government type of, uh, uh, say, gamification side of things. So it also gets into a lot of the active side of things. So that's always great to see. And I think those types of engagements and activities will, will definitely increase you know, both the defensive and offensive capabilities uh, over the long term. Um, so there, there's a lot of positives, I think, direction um, on this. And I think, you know, overall, the direction, I think there was a lot of scary areas, of course, in the OT side and the zero days and, you know, protection and stuff. Um, but... Um, I think I'm glad that I haven't seen anything major in the last couple of years. And like, I, I guess so reading the latest uh, sandworm that it's meant to be a 10 year, <laughs> think a 10 year thing. So maybe we're due one sometime soon. So we should be on our toes because definitely being in Estonia, we have a noisy neighbor that keeps us, uh, let's say, uh, vigorous and, uh, you know, com not complacent. We are always kind of uh, observant and alert. Um, and so it's always, you know, making sure that you, you, you don't become complacent over time. Uh, I think that's yeah. important as well. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So awesome. I think this, this has been an interesting, I think the audience is going to have a lot of different things to take away from this, um, a lot of different discussions and, and for sure we could probably go on for each topic for hours and hours. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but Josh, fantastic having you on the show. It's amazing. I think definitely will. I, I'd love to even pick one of these topics, even one of the events and, and Anytime. even going to a lot more discussion into looking at details. Would and absolutely Mike love again. To. Yeah. yeah, Mike, awesome. Having you, know, was it even from your side? Even uh, was it uh, your observations about what Cyber is doing in regards to things like bounties and, and activities around responsible disclosure? So I think uh, maybe we got two or three shows out of this one. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, but it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on the show um, for everyone, and really look forward to follow-ups uh, in the future. Great. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Justin. It's great to meet you. Good to see you, Mike. Yep. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.